0: It's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. When it comes to climate change, we listen to the scientists. We count the monies raised to finance the transition. And we measure and monitor the emissions of companies and nations. But is there another way to understand the climate crisis? Enter David Hubert David is a self-styled, dirty nature writer, critic, and an assistant professor at the University of New Brunswick. His recently published collection of short stories, Chemical Valley, follows the struggles of characters, from long-term care workers, to preppers, to new mothers, living in the toxic sublime that is Sarnia and elsewhere in Southwestern Ontario. Chemical Valley includes stories that have been selected as a Journey Prize finalist and a National Magazine Award nominee. Coming out of COP26, it's never been more clear we are in an all-hands-on-deck moment, and David is kindly reporting for duty with his tragically beautiful fiction. Thank you for joining me, David and welcome to At Risk.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So you are a self-styled dirty nature writer. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, um, dirty nature writing is what we call, uh, I developed it with my friend Tom Cull, uh, a poet based in London, Ontario, and actually an environmental um, activist as well, um, and a person that I really admire. And we were part of a poetry group and we just started writing these poems about, you know, the natural world we saw around us and um, how fragile and sort of tainted and damaged, but also beautiful it was. Um, So that's, I'd say, the driving spirit of Dirty Nature writing it. It wants to preserve things like the comic Um, to preserve the beauty in a damaged world. It's responding to um, traditional forms of nature writing that have attempted to establish and maintain a clear dichotomy between nature and culture or nature and civilization. And it always wants to sort of muddy those waters, you know. um, It's been a long time since Bill McKibben wrote about the end of nature back in the 80s or the death of nature. And um, yeah, I mean, we can't really, um, with the climate crisis and every, and sort of toxicity and everything else that we know is ocean acidification, um, we can't really maintain an idea that there's such a thing as nature with a capital N unaffected by human beings. So Dirty Nature Writing wants to acknowledge the dirtiness of nature, but also sort of revel in the messiness of ecological life and the complex entanglements between human social structures, um, human industry, and uh, ecological being, non-human life.
0: Thank you. Um, embedded in that, I think, is an understanding of the role of the artist, the poet, the writer in society. It, it, am I correct in thinking about that?
1: Uh, yes, I think absolutely. That's a that's a crucial avenue and something I've been thinking a lot lately. I mean, yeah, I think of um, I think of what I do as a form of act- activism, as a form of uh, social justice, as a place where social justice and ecological justice meet. Um, Yeah. um, So writing itself can be a form of activism. Teaching is a form of activism, just raising awareness about complexities such as those that I'm describing while also trying to do so in a way that connects to people, in a way that genuinely sort of holds open and illuminates human life and human beauty. Um, Yeah, I think all of that is fundamentally a form of activism, a form of Um, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as apolitical writing. And in fact, I think it's a radical ecological act and a very important ecological act to do anything right now that slows us down (laughs) a little bit, right? And so, um, so reading does that for me. Writing does that for me. Deep concentration. There's also sort of a profound, there's usually a profound empathy involved in writing and reading and uh, like reading, you know, art, reading fiction and poetry. Um, there's profound empathy involved in that and certainly an intellectual attempt to see things otherwise. So both in, both in terms of like the speculative, like imagining other possible worlds, but also just rendering the the mundane strange. So looking around the world around us and seeing it suddenly different, trying to trying to get reinvigorated and re-excited about... Um, about what we see around us.
0: It's very inspiring. Um, Last year, I interviewed a fellow by the name of Eric Fischel, and uh, he's an artist uh, and sculptor, uh, and he had sculpted a work uh, called Tumbling Woman coming out of 9-11, and it was not well-received. People did not like it. They found it to be horrific because they viewed it as just too graphic. And in chatting with him, you know, he said, A, that he didn't really view the sculpture as political, but um, he thought that it showed how far apart art is from the public conversation, that over time, art, poetry, writing, we've divorced it from our broader conversation and um, and to him that that's a real problem that, that, that he felt that there was a time where, where artists were much more a part of the conversation uh, what what's your sense you, are, are we hearing from artists writers, poets enough in our public dialogue or do we treat it like it's you know in a box and yes we'll talk about uh, writing uh, but but not in the same breath as what's happening around us.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a rich and fascinating question. Yeah, I certainly have never felt uh, an alienation from the broader world as an artist. I certainly feel, yeah, I mean, I think particularly with poetry, you can feel that poetry is sort of living in its own incubator, that there's a very insular world where poets judge other poets, and it's not necessarily leaking out to the broader public, we might say. But at the same time, you know, if you think of someone like uh, Walt Whitman and the hold that Walt Whitman has on the American cultural imagination still, or if you think about the way that, you know, uh, the incredible way that Shakespeare impacted the English language, I think certainly canonical works of literature have a massive influence on our culture and will continue to have a massive influence on our culture. The work that's being made today and sort of that is part of the Petri dish of art um, that will become sort of a, uh, massively filtered down uh, as we get the the art that remains uh, to speak for sort of our contemporary civilization. Maybe that's not always a huge part of the cultural conversation. I think uh, the other way to look at it is the way that uh, mainstream culture influences art. And that's actually sort of where I where I want to go here and what I'm what I'm deeply interested in. And I think, you know, I think Well, for one, I think art is digesting certain cultural stimuli such as climate crisis in very interesting ways and then repurposing them, rethinking them, remixing them, recycling them, asking us to think them anew in ways that mainstream discourse may not be able to to compute and in, in sort of complex and emotional ways.
0: So let's talk about Chemical Valley. What what a wonderful collection of short stories. Um, have you been happy with the way uh,
1: the book has been received? Uh, yeah, it's still very much in its infancy in terms of reception, I would say, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, I've been happy with it so far. People seem to be noticing what I want them to notice about it or what I hoped they would notice about it. Um, and... Yeah, I think it's I think it's connecting with people. I've got a lot of good feedback, especially from people in sort of the Sarnia area, which is really important to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What drew you to Sarnia?
1: Well, I was living in London, Ontario. I don't know if you know um I don't know how well you know the area. But uh, Oh, I know it very well. I'm from
0: Windsor, Ontario and okay. had a cottage in Grand Bend. So I love this book. <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you're living in London, Ontario, you sort of like hear about Sarnia. I was doing a PhD uh, at Western and doing a PhD on sort of uh, eco-criticism, more particularly animals in American literature, which had a lot to do with uh, my first book and sort of my earlier projects but the whole time I was looking over sort of down the down the 402 and sort of fascinated by Sarnia which and I had some friends from there so I had a chance to visit a lot I went there and did a writing workshop I did some ecological activism there I was um, I did a toxic tour with um, uh, Vanessa Grayley led a group called uh, Anjanong Solidarity Against Pipelines and so we walked around you know in the heart of this petrochemical fortress and, yeah, for me, um, Sarnia just became a very much an emblem of uh, the toxicity that's always down the road, the toxicity that's always around the corner that we might not always see, that especially wealth and privilege permit us not to see while we're sort of you know in our um ivory ish tower of of Western University hanging out on campus, and you know, um this is the price, right. This is, you need to have spaces like these massive industrial spaces in order to allow the possibility that, um, that the neighbors can have something beautiful. So yeah, all of this strangeness seemed to be colliding in my mind and just the very fact of that place, the very fact that there could be 62 petrochemical refineries on both sides of the river, this massive petrochemical Mecca, and that people could live there, uh, could be happy there, that all the people I met from there seemed you know, to have a, the usual standard attachments that we have to places that we call home and sort of um, how profound that was, how strangely beautiful the refineries were at night when the, the lights are all coming on and flickering off the St. Clair River or when the sun's setting behind all those stacks. And there's just a sort of um, a sublime, I call it the toxic sublime, right? That's uh, I'm drawing on an artist, Mark Quinn, who came up with a group of artworks called the toxic sublime. But it really is that sort of combination—that original um, Kantian sense of the sublime, of the sublime as both uh, a combination of awe and terror—and so it's it's this uncanny feeling when you're looking out over the refinery at sunset, and um, it's a sort of perfect emblem for. Uh, the beauty of what what we call the natural world combining with uh, human the ugliness, the profound, almost strangely beautiful ugliness of human technological intervention and um, and mastery
0: yes, when I was reading the book, I you know it sort of felt almost like a, a soil and green as people uh, sort of atmosphere, uh, but rather you know referring to Oil as as the death of living things, and that really it's all around us, and our plastics and pipelines and plants seeping into our our bodies. Um, I was so struck by that thought, and then I started kind of going out and you know thinking about the world that that I live in and 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 seeing it uh, everywhere. What what have the people of sarnia reacted at all to this book and and your your vision of toxic sublime
1: um yeah i haven't got any pushback from sarnians yet (laughs) so uh so we'll see i mean i would i'd love to hear what people think i've talked to my friends in sarnia um they seem convinced by the book but they're you know uh they're people that are relatively like-minded to me. So I'd be interested, you know, I'd be interested to hear what the the broader community thinks, if they've noticed this book. I know, I mean, they're pretty, in Sarnia, they're pretty used to media, um, sort of negative, media, negative framing media about their community. Um, and so I don't think they will see this as particularly um, novel, uh, as a particularly novel threat in any way. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, yeah. And I think in terms of what you're saying more broadly, yes, I was fascinated by, uh, I'm fascinated, continue to be fascinated by the aesthetics of oil, um, the way it can live around us all the time insidiously and invisibly. I think the stealth of oil culture is one of the things that's uh, most dangerous about it. As we know with things like, you know, intensive animal agriculture, if you can't see the thing, Right? If you can't see the thing that's damaging you and damaging your community and if you can't see the horror, um, it's allowed to proliferate to a much greater extent and it's allowed to become much more horrific. So I think that's one of the things about oil. I think one of the things I'm trying to do is illuminate oil, right, to let us see oil. And I mean, so, so your sense that reading the book allowed you to sort of see the oil, um, how insidiously it has infiltrated your life. Um, That means a great deal to me. And that's, you know, that's one of the one of the things I want to do here. I think if we could see the oil, if we could look at the oil a bit differently, if we could even respect the oil, right, because oil gets a really bad rap in um, in popular civilization for, you know, we use words like toxicity. We use words like filth. The oil itself, of course, is a neutral substance. So, I mean, it's 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 us that's pulling it, it up from the ground and creating toxic conditions. So if we could see and sort of respect the oil and maybe even revere the oil or just understand that um, it's a naturally occurring substance, um, maybe we could think of it as a gift. Maybe we could think of it as a beautiful thing that it is. If you actually look up photos of bitumen, you'll see um, it's profoundly beautiful. Um, So. I'm trying to rethink oil, I'm trying to think that underbelly of our civilization, I'm trying to excavate that a little bit and allow us to to see our world anew.
0: One of the sadder aspects of the stories um, are people's inability to care for each other, whether they're Dentists or long-term care providers, uh, parents and their children, teachers and their students. Um, what what caused you to kind of zero in on
1: the sort of dysfunctional care relationships? I mean, I think that one of the things that fiction does really well is illuminate the moments in our lives when uh, when social relationships are inadequate. Um, I think this also. So that's one of the things I'm I'm obviously trying to work with. There is just I love moments in stories um, that show that reveal disconnection, that reveal inadequacy, that reveal fragility. Um, I'm interested in how we might think of such failures as openings, um, in how we might think of of the failure to connect or the failure to care as its own kind of um, lesson or its own kind of teaching, or its own kind of building of strength, things like strength and resilience. I guess the idea, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Dreamhaven, and the idea, so that's uh, the last story, second last story in the book, and it deals with uh, a worker, a nurse who's working at a long-term care facility, and she's trying to take care of, and you know, this is set during um, the, COVID, the COVID spring, and she's trying to deal with sort of, She's making a deep connection with um, with one of the people she's charged to care for, um, an elderly woman, and she, you know, she's learning the she's learning the hard way the limits of her capacity to care. So I think I was very interested in this idea of long term care. Right, long-term care, which always, of course, ends with the end of care, the incapacity to care, and I guess um, caretaking, caretakers that we are. If you're a caretaker, as I sort of am, then uh, then you realize the extent, the limitations of that, right, uh, of that impulse. But at the same time, it's a beautiful impulse, even if it. We can never completely care, right? We can never succeed in the task of caring for one another, ultimately, completely, and yet, yet we try. And um, I think there's something, I think there's something beautiful in that. I think also, sort of, the broader thematics of the book, um, dealing with climate crisis and the emotional impacts of that. Um, there's a lot of characters with young children in the book, and so. Um, I think this idea of caring for your child is very much exacerbated right now in the present moment. I know many, many people have anxiety about, um, righteous anxiety, about what it means to sort of care for a child in this particular moment because, of course, our idea of the future has been so radically shaken as of late. Yeah,
0: thank you for that. It also made me think about you know, we're often overly simplistic about our relationship to nature and our environment. Even even folks who celebrate nature and take great care, our interaction always leaves some form of footprint. And we haven't really measured our impact, whether it's a company or a person or or a country, till relatively recently. Um, and so in some ways, I kind I I viewed the complicate the complicated caring relationship um throughout the book as uh, you know sort of representing the, the the diversity of impacts we all have on our environments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, I think that's that's a crucial that's a crucial angle, and and definitely yeah, environment, um, the impacts that we have on our environment and the impacts that we have on other people, and um, sort of uh, degrees and layers of privilege is actually really important here as well. The idea that, of course, yeah, we can go out into nature um, as we might think of it. We can go to say a national park. And we can you know take care of that place in our own way and we can respect that place in our own way but at the same time we need to think about if you think about the broader economic picture of what it means to go to a national park of the privilege required of that the personal privilege to like go there to have the income the cost of your everyday life that allows you to have the privilege to go enjoy that space as an aberration from your everyday life and replenish and rejuvenate so that you can return to um to your everyday life um so you can think about those sort of layers of entanglement as well um and also yeah i think there have been um i think there have been cultures that have been thinking particularly i'm just thinking of like indigenous cultures that have been thinking more uh, for a long time, I've been trying to advocate for and live according to a perhaps more balanced uh, ecological model.
0: Yes, which brings me to to my my next question: and um, where do you see the optimism in these stories?
1: Right. Yeah. And that was uh, that was a question when you asked about the reception of the book. I was definitely thinking about um, about that because it's. You know, uh, one of the rea- a lot of people seem to be taking this book quite heavily <laughs> as well, and I mean it is a heavy book. I know it is. Um, yeah, and uh, I tried to add some some important moments of levity when I when I so one of the first stories, Chemical Valley, uh, I submitted to uh, and got published by a local magazine called The Fiddlehead, which is a really lovely magazine, and uh, that story ended up having some some good success through the Journey Prize as well um where was a finalist but um one of the copy editors or perhaps the proof the proofreader from the magazine wrote back and said oh this story has totally devastated me um for like i've been thinking about it for three days and it's it's wonderful but it's you know really really heavy and um You know at the one on the one hand I thought well that's great Um, it's had an impact and you know this is a requirement of this moment that we we have these heavy experiences these heavy and often very difficult emotional experiences of coming to terms with the degree of what's happening both in terms of climate crisis and in this case toxicity right but at the same time, I thought it was important to add some degrees of levitas to the collection, um, of levity. And so, um, so yeah, I tried to add some some comic moments, some playful moments, and even in that story, I think there are moments of of light and illumination and and genuine human connection, um, optimism. Optimism, I'm not quite sure you know i do want to i do want to give people beauty in my writing that's certainly something that i want to do i think you know uh, i think it's a writer's duty to to make things beautiful at least a writer uh, a writer of my ilk so i do try to i try to look at the trouble all around us and i do try to affirm life in spite of everything that's happening. And all my characters, I think, to some extent, would say, yes, look at this world around me. It's troubled. It's hurting. It's bruised. It's in pain. It's wounded. It's damaged. And I want it. I want it. Right? Um, And so I think my characters do want to affirm life at the end of the day. They affirm life through each other, through connecting, through reaching out. And they affirm life through the natural world, even as they contemplate, the damage that's already been done, the damage that's projected to be done in the future, they still want it. And I think that wanting and that ecological, what I think of as ecological love, right? I want to cultivate ecological love in this collection. I want to make things beautiful. I want to make a beauty that that moves like dandelions in the wind and grows like weeds in the parking lot. And I think that's the kind of beauty that we need right now, is sort of an undercommons of ecological resilience. And, uh, and so I wanted to try to make some space for thinking about what that might look like in the collection, which I do in various ways. Many of them, uh, many of them are failed attempts to sort of cultivate this sort of um, underground ecological uh, activism and connection and community. But at the same time, people are trying to do that. And I think that's really important. And I think there's a ton of people trying to do that in many ways in our world today. Um, last thing I would say about optimism is that i'm wary of the term hope i've been asked about the term hope uh, a fair amount in people's response to this book and um i'm just not sure that hope is the right barometer i think one of the things i've mentioned uh privilege i think one of the things that people are people like me you know a white person who was raised in halifax in chibuktuk and mi'kma'ki um one of the things I was fed was hope, right? I was fed hope and I was fed a belief in progress when I went to school. And I think it was already way too late to be feeding me that, right? So um, I think certainly a very, I think we need to feed our children responsibility. I think we need to feed them love, absolutely, and care. But I also think maybe uh, hope might be the wrong barometer because hope can be misleading. Hope can be an anesthetic, And if hope is an anesthetic, then that's not really something that I want right now.
0: Very fair. Very fair. Um, My husband's from Glace Bay, and I don't think it's hope per se, but whenever I go to Glace Bay, if you didn't know there had been mines there, you would never know that there today that that there was this huge mining industry there. The nature, and it's usually weeds, um, you know, I don't know if it's actual plants that are native to that area, but it very quickly uh, takes over the empty space or, or reoccupies uh, the the empty space, um, whether it was the railroad tracks or the entrances to the mind. And it doesn't give me hope. <laughs> and I guess in my darkest moments, my optimism kind of comes from, you know, it's like, well, Sometimes I wonder about whether our species will make it through this, but I sort of feel the planet will will endure and, and probably not enough species um, will, will, will overcome uh, the obstacles we have created, uh, but there's a resiliency in other species that might outlive and, and outlast our own.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and that's a beautiful uh, example you've given of Glace Bay and the mines. It actually, I have not visited Glace Bay recently, not for a long time, but um, I'm making a note to go because <laughs> that's uh, part of my sort of aesthetic landscape as well, and part of the part of Magmaji and part of the place I think of as home. Yeah, and I think that that underground, that sort of idea of the underground. Uh, mine world that's now sort of still lurking there unseen is a is a fascinating one and is very apropos for my work as well i think you're absolutely right about ecological resilience certainly if there's any thought that gives me comfort it's you know the deep time thought of the way this planet will recover and the way future forms of life might look like and um and yeah i think there's absolutely Um, hope for our species is one level, but then there's sort of a a larger immersion in our ecological home of that is this planet and, um, and hope for that is important to cultivate too. And that's, that's one of the things I do throughout the the collection. Another thing, um, I think about and write about throughout in the collection is Chernobyl, which is another good example of this, right? The, all the animals in the uh, Chernobyl exclusion zone becomes sort of, um, yeah, a, sent, a leitmotif elite motif or a central a central moment that 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 these stories want to think through where the idea of just thinking about just taking that as a lesson, right? It's like the best thing for these for non-human life might actually be exclusion, <laughs> exclusion of human life. So um, you know, the one thing we need to do best is to just sort of leave zones alone. Um and if we leave zones alone, then they'll be they will give us remarkable gifts. Um yeah, non-human life in the natural world is astonishingly resilient. And um it might it might well give us great joy and it might lift our spirits to sit back and watch that watch that happen a little more than we do.
0: One of my favorite moments, uh in the collection, uh, that uh, that certainly is uh, well. I'll say light. <laughs> it certainly brings some levity to it. it uh, are the characters uh, that are coined the chili preppers, mm-hmm. and I certainly laughed out loud when when I read about them. Um, now, of course, there, there's a there's some uh, underlying sadness there too. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about, since this is the the at risk uh, podcast, when when you were thinking about these characters, the, these characters who who engage in in prepping for um, you know near apocalyptic disaster, what do you think the error in the sort of the risk calculus is there? Like, what's happening in those characters' minds? do you figure that, that, that drives them to, to prepping or are they just tomorrow's geniuses? (laughs) Uh,
1: They're certainly not geniuses as I think, you know, from reading the story. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that you found some levitas in that too. It is, it's an easy, uh, I think it's a bit of an easy trend to, to lampoon or make fun of. And so, um, but at the same time, it's an it's an increasingly popular trend, and there's there's people that are taking this very very seriously, and yeah, they might well end up, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you might want to have an exit plan, and you might want to know somebody like this. <laughs> um, absolutely, like you know, I I certainly know the uncle that I'm going to go visit uh, when the power goes out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly crossed my imagination. Um, so yeah, but at the same time, I think for me, I think you're right to ask what is the error in the calculus of risk there. And for me, the error in the calculus of risk is preparation. The idea that we can be prepared. Um, so one of these people call themselves preppers, right? Um, you can't, you, I just believe that you fundamentally cannot prepare for all uh, inevitable outcomes. You can't see the future. You can't know what you're going to need. You can't know how it's going to happen. And that's why it becomes a sort of obsession, right? Um, What am I going to need? What should I be stockpiling? There's all these, uh, there's certainly good things that, you know, I did a fair amount of research on this and there's uh, there are certainly very logical approaches to things that you will need if an emergency arises. And I think a certain amount of emergency preparation is good, but I think the idea, you know, the idea of preparation, the idea of being prepared, this is sort of, you know, we've been, this is an eschatological form of thinking, right? So it's apocalyptic, but it's also kind of biblical. Um, We've been thinking about preparation for grace, For example, in the Calvinist tradition, for a long, long time, right? So, what does it mean to be prepared to meet another world? I think there's actually just a deep human psychological fascination with this. I think another um, very interesting element of this is the way that um, prepping um, can be co opted by uh, economic forces, forces of capitalism, and the way that, um, you know, the way that, for you know, uh, something like *The Walking Dead* right might inspire a bunch of people to go out and buy a whole bunch of particular things, and then things get marketed in particular ways for the sort of um, the prepping community. But yeah, I think fundamentally for me, this idea of preparation is is inadequate, um, is distracting, is perhaps not not the best way to live our daily lives and to focus on the ones we love. Mm, I,
0: I I agree with that for, for sure. And it sort of, um, it's so downstream, right? And it's response, it's like, well, perhaps, you know, we can also look at the, the more upstream role we can play in uh, decreasing the likelihood of these bad outcomes. Not not everything is within our individual control, but um, there's certainly choices we we can also focus on uh, that, that it might lessen the need for such preparations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think in terms of the present moment as well, um, just coming back to like what I, you know, the question about optimism, I think we may well be living in a moment of awakening. I think that can be difficult to see. I think um, you know we've learned these lessons the hard way, but it takes a long time for a civilization or a culture to adapt. Um, at the same time, we're an incredible adaptable, we're incredibly adaptable species. We've shown that over and over again. So um, you know, it's the future is likely to not be as good as the one that I was promised growing up in Halifax in the nineteen nineties. Um, but at the same time, I think we may well show an enormous resilience. Um, And I think, yeah, let's lean into that. Let's try to support that. Um, Let's try to make that possible. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, There's one other part I just want to uh, uh, pick your brain about. Um, And that is um, uh, when a character, uh, I don't want to give any of the plot away because it's such a great story, but, but, but you write about when fear turns risk. Um, when all the little cracks fuse into flood. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, I mean, that was happening in an individual character, but is that something you kind of think about in our broader kind of social context? Is that, do, do you fear that that is a tension that is arising out of this moment, that that people may, their ecological grief
1: may, may turn into social unrest or, or maybe it's already happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it is already happening. I think not necessarily ecological grief, but ecological pressure. Um, we have, you know, we have fewer resources. We have increasing desertification. We have migration happening due to climate change. We have danger of, of island states. So we have people competing for, 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 less land, fewer resources. I think that creates a pressure. I think everyone's feeling that pressure. That creates a reluctance of, um, you know, certain um, economically wealthier countries or like spatially mm, relatively more immune countries, a reluctance of around immigration. And um, yeah, that's, you know, that's a violence. That's that's a systemic violence. That's the violence of the future that we're going to be living with, and it's it's troubling and scary. And um, I think it's going to be a difficult thing to find uh, a humane way through. David, I really want to thank
0: you for for writing these stories. I think, in addition to you know adding to the public discourse, I think it's also a really don't you know mentally healthy way to think about profound challenges, um, you know, you can read the newspapers, you can read studies, um, and, you know, we should, um, we can uh, be politically active, we can, uh, you know, um, try and, and change the negative trends that, that we're seeing. I think particularly Today and some of it's pandemic-driven. You know, we've been kind of driven into our homes, you know, to lesser and greater degrees, depending on where where you're living. Um, so I just find it—it's so. I found it really, um, I guess, just mental—a mentally healthy way <laughs> of thinking about what are some dark and and profound challenges to to get to know these characters and to think about our own struggle and and their struggles, and I guess the contradictions we're we're living with right now and what the path forward might be. So thanks very much.
1: Thank you, yeah. um, I absolutely want to put that on the back of the book. (laughs) Very (laughs) healthy way, a mentally healthy way to think about these difficult things, yeah. Um, no, that means a lot to me. And I think you're right. And I think not reducing the, comp- trying, you know, what this book does is it looks at human beings living with all of these difficult questions that we're all living with. And it tries to not reduce the complexity of of what that means. And it tries to pair pair those problems and those issues with the everyday struggles that we're all also living in our lives, trying to navigate, right, trying to navigate um, death and disease around us, trying to navigate the loss of loved ones, trying to navigate breakups, difficult people, um, trying to navigate sort of, um, sexual pressures, all of these things, you know, uh, emerge in the story, trying to navigate having a kid, having a baby. Um, meanwhile, this other thing, this big shadow, right? Um you can think of it as like uh as like, you know, that that big wall in the north in the Game of Thrones, right? There's this other sort of we just are struggling to, to live our human lives and at the same time there's this big threat looming and um gotta learn to gotta learn to find a way, as you say.
0: We certainly do. And thank you so much for making it maybe even just the tiniest amount easier. David Hubert, thank you so much. Chemical Valley is a treasure and I hope everyone has a chance to read it. Thanks,
1: Jody. It was a great pleasure to chat with you today.